0: For more information on MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, please visit MAPS.org and sign up for the e-newsletter to stay up to date on everything going on within the MAPS universe. Welcome to the podcast, episode 10 of the MAPS podcast. This is your host, Zach Leary. I'm so happy that you're here. Episode 10, we're moving right along. Very cool. Thank you to all of those who have joined us on this journey so far and who have uh, subscribed to the podcast. It's, It's really been great to get your feedback, to get your comments, to see the community engaging around this important information that is being organized and disseminated into the podcast format. And we're having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, So episode 10, we're bringing this is uh, from Psychedelic Science 2017, and it was a panel um, called The Future of Psychedelic Psychiatry, and it was moderated by George Goldsmith, and it is with Paul Summergrad and Thomas Insel, both MDs. And we'll get into what that panel is about in just a second, but first... This is from the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, written, of course, by James Fadiman. And I just love these couple paragraphs from the introduction, and it relates to mysticism, and there's a reason why I wanted to talk about this. But they go like this. There is a door within the self. When this door is opened, a unity is revealed that encompasses all beings and transcends all boundaries. Mystics in every religious system, in every culture, in every age have reported this to be the highest truth. Those who have had such an experience agree that the state is elusive and usually recalled only in fragments. However, those who have achieved even a moment of this visionary understanding consider it of incalculable value. Cultures have developed dozens of ways to apprehend this unit of state. Paths including physical austerities, cycles of prayer, meditation, devotions, breathing rituals, and physical postures. A significant number have used plants in combination with other practices. For some, the use of psychedelic makes the experience suspect. But there are those who believe that however one ascends the mountain, the view from the summit is the same. What one gains from that vista and from the climb will depend, as it always has, on how one incorporates such moments into one's life. Now that is really great. Those two paragraphs I just like them so much because they deal with mysticism, which is a very, very important ingredient that has, uh, you know, in a lot of ways has become sort of absent from modern Western culture. Of course, if you're listening to this podcast and you are, you are into these various methods, you are probably a modern mystic. But uh, it talks a lot about mysticism, mysticism, and also about uh, how the method itself, as long as you integrate the method uh, in a in a righteous and intelligent way isn't really important. The view from the summit is the same. Um, So it's uh, what's so great about what MAPS is doing and what we experience at psychedelic science, at the Psychedelic Science Conference is that we are, as we're getting rid of the stigma uh, behind psychedelics and returning it to the mystical edge, of course, through the lens of therapy and research and data but to where you can lose the stigma and just focus on the results. And it is so, so important. So that's that. So this panel is really great. It is um, called uh, The Future of Psychiatry. And it is moderated by George Goldsmith, who really has a fantastic, fantastic bio and uh, CV. You've got to check him out. He's the co-founder and director of Compass a nonprofit medical research organization dedicated to accelerating access to evidence-led innovation in mental health and well-being. And it features Paul Summergrad and Thomas Insel, both MDs who are uh, you know, really pillars of the uh, modern mental health movement uh, in their respective Emory University for Dr. Insel and Tufts for Dr. Summergrad, uh, their bios—bios so bios are, are very, very long and in depth—but they're just fantastic thinkers, and uh, their credibility goes without saying. Um, so, I hope you enjoy this this talk. It's a panel format and uh, very conversational and very loose, but it's about uh, the future of psychedelic psychiatry. Enjoy.
1: George Goldsmith, interesting moderator here. George Goldsmith has spent, and no no relation, has spent most of his life creating companies that help people work across the different boundaries that that separate us as individuals and organizations. His early training and experience was a multidisciplinary blending of cognitive psychology, clinical psychology, and computer science. He's co-founder and chairman of Compass Pathways, a healthcare company dedicated to accelerating patient uh, access to evidence-based innovation in mental health and well-being. He's also chairman and founder of Tapestry Networks, an organization committed to improving leadership performance and governance effectiveness in regulated sectors. Quite relevant here. Um, Earlier in his career, his first company, the Human Interface Group, a pioneer in collaborative software, was acquired by Lotus Development, and so George led the Lotus Institute and created software and services to support high-performance distributed teamwork. George then created Tomorrow Lab, which provided strategic guidance to internet businesses in the late 90s. At the same time, he became a senior advisor to McKinsey & Company, the largest Finance consulting firm at the time eventually joined McKinsey as CEO of Tomorrow Lab at McKinsey. Subsequently, as a member of Young Presidents' Organization, its international board of directors, he founded YPO Networks. He lives in London with his wife and Compass co founder, Ekaterina Maliavaskia, MD. So I will turn the floor over now to George, who's going to take over and introduce. Thank you for joining us.
2: Hi, everyone. No, just a moment.
3: Okay. We're using this one instead. Hi, everyone. So I'm really privileged to be joined by Tom Insel and Paul Summergrad today, and uh, we'll introduce them in a moment. Um, When Rick and I first spoke about this panel, it must have been almost a year ago, and we kind of had this question, would it be possible to get Tom and Paul to talk about the future of psychiatry and to really look at this question of, is there a future for, thank you, okay, I I respond to coaching, it's good, Um, and uh, is there a future for psychedelic psychiatry, actually for the future of psychiatry? And of course, Rick being Rick, he said, well, actually we want this panel to be on the future of psychedelic psychiatry, and hence the name of the panel. However as we started talking more and more about this, we realized that maybe the panel was just a little over-optimistic in its title. And maybe what we should really spend our time on is the following, which is making the case for the future of psychedelic psychiatry. Because that's really where we are on this journey. And I guess it's okay to use a journey metaphor in this room. Does that work? Okay. Just checking. Um, I... I think this has been a really big period for us over the last couple of years, this community, of developing more rigorous science, more publications, more academic involvement, Um, and we've started some conversations with regulators and governments across Europe, as others have been doing in the United States, and I think it's really getting to be an interesting time for this whole field. So what what I want to do today is just give you a sense of where we're going to go and the terrain we'll cover in a conversation, right? Just a conversation about where are we on this journey and how are we going to take the next steps. Um, And the way we're thinking about this reemergent field is it's at an important juncture. There are promising early results, but they're very early results from the perspective of patient access. Um, And they're done in relatively small studies. So now the question is, how do we go from relatively small studies with interesting signals to actually looking at what would be required to create a new path for patient care? And I think this is really, for those of us in looking at how to provide patient access to these promising treatments, this is really what's next. And... It's not for the faint-hearted. This is actually going to require a tremendous amount of rigor and focus. So the next step on this journey, and then I'll introduce Tom and, and Paul in the conversation, is really about not talking to ourselves as much as we talk to ourselves in this community, but actually to be engaging many others of regulators, governments, health economists, health systems, insurers, healthcare professionals, and most importantly, patients. And that's the next community that needs to actually be engaged here, because that's the path to making a difference that matters at scale. And so we'll spend some time about that today. So what are we doing today on this journey of the journey? We're gonna start with an assessment and a little discussion about the burden of mental illness and really talk about the current state of affairs in that. We're then going to go look at some innovations um, including psychedelic therapies, but not limited to psychedelic therapies. And then talk a bit about the next steps around funding, regulatory approvals, engaging practicing profes- professionals. And then, of course, most importantly, we want to leave time for Q&A since that's where the most value will probably come through interacting here. So I'm now finally going to get to introduce Tom and Paul. Tom and is a neuroscientist and psychiatrist who leads the mental health team at Verily, which used to be called Google Life Sciences in South San Francisco. From 2002 to 2015, Dr. Insel served as director of the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, the component of the National Institutes of Health committed to research on mental disorders. In that role, he also served as chair of the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee, as well as co lead of the NIH Brain Initiative. Prior to serving as the NIMH Director, Dr. Insull was Professor of Psychiatry at Emory University, where he was founding Director of the Center for Behavioral Neuroscience and the Director of the Yerkes Regional Primate Center in Atlanta. Dr. Insull's research has examined the neural basis of complex social behaviors, including maternal care and attachment. He's a member of the National Academy of Medicine, has received numerous national and international awards, and served in several leadership roles at NIH. Thank you, Tom, for coming. Paul Paul Summergrad is the Dr. Francis S. Arkin Professor and Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Professor of Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine and Psychiatrist in Chief at Tufts Medical Center. Dr. Somergrad served as the 141st president of the American Psychiatric Association and is a past president of the American Association of Chairs of Departments of Psychiatry. Dr. Summergrad previously served as chief of inpatient psychiatric services at Massachusetts General Hospital from 1987 to 1998 and is associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. An international leader... In medical psychiatric illness and care, Dr. Sommergrad's research focuses on mood disorders, medical psychiatric illness and health system design. He has published extensively with over 100 peer-reviewed publications, books, book chapters and other communications. A sought-after speaker, educator and consultant, he has served as a visiting professor and has given invited lectures throughout the United States and internationally. He completed his training in internal medicine at Boston City Hospital and Boston University School of Medicine and in psychiatry at uh, Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, where he was chief resident and clinical fellow in psychiatry. Well, you can tell that these are really highly accomplished individuals who I think are really leading lights in thinking about what is this world of psychiatry? What is the world of mental health need? And how do we get started in understanding this journey ahead of us? So I thought we'd get started, actually, by talking about where are we right now? What's the current state of affairs in mental health and mental health care? And when we talked a bit about this in planning the discussion, we said, well, one of the things that was pretty interesting was a recent World Economic Forum Harvard report on NCDs, non-communicable diseases. And I thought, Paul, you were pretty passionate about this as a changing context. Maybe you could share some of your thoughts, and then we'll turn to Tom for some of his thoughts on the mental health side of that.
4: Thank you. I'd really be glad to, and it's a pleasure to be here. And thanks to Rick Doblin for his kind invitation and putting together this, this, great, this great meeting. Um, so when we think about the burden of mental disorders, mental health conditions, um, they're really, really quite substantial, and they're growing. And I think one way to think about this is that mental disorders are the preeminent disorders of young people. If you look at people between the ages of 15 and 45, the burden of illness, and ask any parent who's worried about their kid when they're off in college, they're generally not worried about them having a stroke. They're worried about other kinds of, of, of situations. So that, th- these are common illnesses, common conditions, They are extensive, they're worldwide, and they're growing. And part of the reason they're growing is because as infectious diseases get brought under control, what's left is non-communicable diseases. And among the non-communicable diseases, the greatest burden is actually cardiovascular diseases and mental health disorders. And if you look at what happens as countries develop, and you can watch this from sub-Saharan Africa to India to China, when you look at China's burden of disease... It looks very, very much like the United States. Love Mao or hate Mao, he said they were going to get rid of fleas and mosquitoes and waterborne diseases, and they have. But what that's left is a burgeoning realization and recognition that mental health conditions. And this is not only something that affects people's well being, their happiness, their suffering, the suffering of those around them, it affects economies and affects medical care costs. So, medical care costs throughout the world are higher with individuals who have mental um, mental disorders, substance use disorders. And the impact on productivity, because people are at the peak of the workforce when many people are suffering with these illnesses, is very, very substantial as well. So this is something which actually, if we look forward, will only increase as the world development shifts and, and as, as the great investments that are being done now, for example, by Gates Foundation and others, begin to bring under control malaria and other infectious diseases, waterborne diseases, maternal child health conditions, what will be left as non-communicable diseases. Tom, how does
3: that manifest in terms of mental health specifically, and what are you
2: seeing in terms of some of the situations? So let me me build a little bit on Paul's thesis, because I think it's important to frame this from where we've come from to understand where we are now. The last four or five decades have really been a remarkable time for biomedical advances. It's really extraordinary. Then if you think about the diseases I dealt with as a medical student and, and physician in the 70s, most, many of those are, are just no longer on the map. It's kind of amazing. Many of the infectious diseases of childhood are now quite rare. Um, Even cardiovascular disease, which was the largest killer at that time, mortality is down 63% over the last 40 to 50 years. Uh, We've had epidemics like HIV come and essentially go. Uh, There's just been extraordinary progress in so many areas in medicine. And then you look at psychiatry, and you have this really interesting kind of discontinuity on the one hand, all of us in this field have had the experience that we can be very helpful to some people. We have medications that have emerged almost as a revolution. We have psychotherapies. We now have devices. And within a scientific context, each one of those has been amazing in terms of efficacy and even in terms of safety. And many of us have the experience that we're much more helpful today than we were 20 or 30 years ago to patients with similar kinds of problems. And yet the data don't support that. The suicide rate is higher now, or t- trending higher, than it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. The, As Paul mentioned, uh, measures of more morbidity as opposed to mortality are actually higher, not lower. So by public health measures... We're not doing very well, and yet it seems like there ought to be the opportunity to bend the curve because we've got lots of tools that are available to us. So, so why is that? What's the, what's the problem? And I, I think there are several explanations. We may never really completely solve this, but at least one of the problems is that so many of the people who have the disorders that we care about, schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD, which you've heard about this afternoon, the ones that contribute to the morbidity and mortality we're talking about, those people are not in care. And at least one of the reasons for that is that what we're offering is not what they want. What we're selling, that's not what they're buying. There are other reasons as well. These disorders by themselves often preclude treatment. People don't feel like they deserve treatment. There are a bunch of issues that come with this. But unlike the case with cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and many other medical problems, we still have this issue that over 60%, or about 60% of the people with the illnesses are not in care. And when they do get into care, it's at stage four. It's when they're in crisis. And in medicine, we don't do very well at stage four, whether we're talking about cancer or heart disease or, or depression. So... Long answer to a short question, George, but I think right now you'd have to say, looking at the data, we're not doing so well. Uh, In spite of lots of things that we've tried, nothing has really managed to have the impact here that we've seen in infectious diseases, that we've seen in many other parts of medicine.
3: It's really interesting you say that, Tom, and I think this is a really good introduction just around the burden and the unmet need that we have. One of the statistics that I was really intrigued by is that the 20-year period following the introduction of Prozac, we saw an 80-fold increase in the sale of psychopharmaceuticals. And we saw a 40-fold increase in the disability cases for mental health. And so if you look at the introduction of almost any other therapy, you have an inverse relationship between the cost of the medicine and the burden of the disease. And that's not happening here. Um, and many people are helped by the tools we have, but not enough are helped enough. I think. So I, I guess let's shift a little bit. That gives us a sense of the broader context. But what are some of the big challenges? Why is this possibility, this I mean, this innovation, not
4: taking place as much in this area? What what what's driving that?
3: And I just each of you to reflect on some of
4: the yeah, challenges. Uh, let me mention two areas that are very different and. Um, you know, and agree with Tom, I mean, that, that, that we certainly have seen the introduction of lots of treatments, compounds, psychotherapies that are effective. But if we look at it from a public health standpoint, it certainly has not moved the kind of indicators that we need to see move. Nor, for example, has it really helped to reduce the early mortality of individuals, particularly with serious psychiatric illness, about 60% of which is due to other comorbid medical illnesses that are not getting the appropriate care. I mean, we wouldn't tolerate having people die 15 years younger than their age-match controls in most other kinds of situations. and We certainly wouldn't tolerate the kinds of backups in emergency rooms we see, not just in the United States but in the U.K., even with the National Health Service, for people needing psychiatric care. So one, one piece of this is related to stigma. And stigma is a kind of shorthand, I think, for a couple of issues. On the one hand, not all suffering, including not all psychological suffering, is is psychiatric illness. There are disorders, there are conditions that are quite serious and quite disabling, but there's all sorts of other kinds of suffering, what my Buddhist teachers would call dukkha, you know, the normal suffering of, of everyday life. And there are existential issues and developmental issues that people deal with. So on the one hand, it becomes a little hard to sort of for people to sometimes separate out, well, what are we really talking about here? Secondly, while on the one side, uh, and we know a lot about this, the neurobiologic, genetic, other abnormalities that are associated particularly with serious psychiatric illnesses, from the flip side, these are the most intimate and personal conditions one can have. This is about not one's leg or one's knee or one's arm, but one's self and one's sense of self and one's sense of the world. It's very, very personal. It's very deep. It's very close. And we care deeply as a species about things that are valuable to us. Nobody guards the garbage dump. People guard things that are valuable to them. And we guard our sense of self. So for many people, the notion that one is going to deal with these kinds of problems is one which is not only externally criticized, but internally is challenging. And so that that it makes it hard in many ways for society to organize around this care. And there's still a lot of blame that's associated with with these conditions. Now, Lincoln, who had severe depression, in 1841 wrote a letter to his law partner's sister, uh, Mary Speed. And in the letter he wrote, and this is true, uh, he was writing about melancholy, which was the 19th century term for depression. He said, a tendency to melancholy is a misfortune, not a fault misfortune, not a fault. But we still too often see these conditions as a fault. And there's a lot of blame. So I think that's one piece of this. The second is it's really, really, really complex and hard scientifically. We don't have the kind of animal models that map well to these conditions. We have the most complex biologic entity that we know of, which is the human brain, which we have not had until really the last 20 or 30 years the capacity to study in vivo while it's actually working. And you, you know, you've seen some of this kind of research here, the imaging studies, the genetic studies, and others. So we are unraveling a puzzle that's very, very complex. And then the third piece of that is the mind and all of this are not necessarily identical. And it's at a different level of abstraction. And until we have models that really help us understand how the brain gives rise to consciousness and to the mind, what its relationship is, and how these things bring forward what we consider various forms of illness, it's really hard to have the kind of precision that we have in, in cancer or cardiovascular or other illnesses. So part of this is just, this is really, really tough science, and I think it's important that we remember that.
2: Yeah, I, I would second most of that. I think the um, you know, there are issues with the questions around innovation – And I think there has been a lot of innovation. I mean, gosh, it's amazing the number of things that have been tried. And and there are things that are quite successful within a narrow framework. What strikes me about uh, the last 20 or 30 years of discovery and innovation, uh, at least on the therapeutic side in psychiatry, and what uh, is refreshing about being here, uh, is that the Most of what people do on the therapeutic side is incredibly fragmented. You get medication or you get psychotherapy or now the whole thing is to use devices. Um, In diabetes, we're a little smarter about that. We actually put all this stuff together and we make sure that there's a kind of integrated care plan uh, because in diabetes we think, oh, it's kind of complicated. You know, the pancreas isn't that simple. It's not as simple as the brain where you can just (laughs) throw a pill at it and suddenly everything is fine. So um, we need to wake up to the idea, as Paul was just suggesting, that the complexity here is going to demand a networked approach, a comprehensive approach, that the idea that there's going to be a magic bullet, whether that is Prozac or MDMA, forget about it. It's not going to work that way. And the idea that there's going to be a magic interpretation or magic psychotherapy, as much as we might hope that it would happen, I think our history says... That's probably just not the way we're going to bend the curve. But putting these things together in a strategic way, and I'm really impressed, actually, by the approach here. People don't say simply we're going to give psychedelics. They talk about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. You know, I've never heard anybody talk about antidepressant-assisted psychotherapy. I've never heard anybody even talk about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. This is really interesting, and I think it's a really novel approach to um, trying to get at a way to actually have a bigger impact by saying, let's, let's knit some of this together and do it in a way that borrows the power of a powerful medication experience with a chance to learn skills and a chance to develop connections and then to be able to integrate that to really make a change in somebody's life now that 's a really different innovation than where we 've been. The question I have for you, George, is like how does how do you get that through a regulatory pipeline how, What would the FDA say about this or EMA I mean they won 't even touch psychotherapy alone when you add psilocybin or MDMA to psychotherapy what How do you approach that what like what is the path forward there? You you probably know more about this than anybody on the planet at this point. Well, it's been a uh, long and winding road on this journey. Uh,
3: You know, when we first met with the European Medicines Agency, it was a fascinating meeting because what we were told was they were almost waiting. They were waiting for someone to bring this new type of model to them because they know that there's challenges with the current model. They were also really, thank you for that, uh, they were also really interested in this question of, well, we know people are taking these drugs. We know they don't know really what they're taking when they take it quite often. We know that there is benefit for some, but we don't know for whom. And we know that this is being done in an uncontrolled setting with people who have various types of training. So what if we could actually bring those things together, have high quality medicine, clear training, a way to assess outcomes and to continue to determine how that would progress. And so we actually found that they were incredibly receptive at a conceptual level. Now, the trick is, how do you go from that kind of conceptual understanding to 50 years of we've always done it this way, which is we look at the medicine, um, and so that's their job. That's actually not just their job. It's what they're legally told they have to do is look at the effectiveness of the medicine relative to a placebo or some other comparator. So I think that there, the, the will is there, but the path is something that we're kind of co-creating. But what I would also say, of uh, the world of regulators, and I've spent a lot of time working with regulators and in innovation over the past decade, um, it's not a fixed black box. These are very intelligent people who have come with a commitment to actually look at how to provide this kind of access to innovation and improve care. So my experience of this is almost like the wonderful Oppenheimer quote, which is, you know, when he was asked about the uh, Manhattan Project, he said, well, actually, it's a technically sweet problem that we're all engaged in. And as we've talked to regulators and health system leaders and health ministers, it's it is a very kind of technically sweet, complex problem that's more interesting than the 14th satin, Me Too, that's coming down the pike. So, so it's this mix of how do you innovate in regulation? So.
4: And, and I think, you know, to, to echo Tom's point, and, and I, think to, I think it's important to emphasize, you know, if you look at the work that's been presented here, whether it's in MDMA or it's in psilocybin or it's in other compounds, this is a very, very different model of care. You know, most care that happens, somebody takes, let's say they have a panic disorder, they have an anti- they have a depression, they take a depression, let's say they get antidepressant, they get better, and they're in psychotherapy, psychotherapy may continue, might not. But in general, most of those patients, especially if they've had recurrent illness, will stay on antidepressants for years, if not, if not longer. This is a model, and, and, our, and the psychotherapy often continues for long periods of time, whether broken up or not. This is a much more intensive and different kind of model. It's several sessions, maybe even just one session with preparation that's psychotherapeutically built around it. And you think of it in some sense, and I think that the word journey is a good journey. It's a kind of very intense journey where you're taking compounds that, again, lots that we don't know but certainly change the fluidity of certain kinds of mental states or the balance of certain kinds of mental states and make certain kinds of mental capacities or parts of oneself accessible. And it allows an intensive kind of work that we ordinarily don't see. I mean, the only other places where you could get work like this in In the old days was psychoanalysis, sometimes certain kinds of group psychotherapy, or when people were still allowed to be hospitalized to be able to come off of their medications and to see what was actually going on with them, which is something you can't really do anymore. So this is very different, and it's going to require a different way of thinking about it.
3: And I think that's what's really appealing for folks, because for a lot of the regulators and health system people is how can we have a different model with a different safety profile, a different way of approaching it, but also, most critically, a model that scales. Um, that when you start looking at the scope of this problem that's here, the scope of the opportunity to reduce suffering, it's huge. And how do we develop that? And I guess, Tom, I was curious. You know, you were at NIMH for 13 years as leader of that. And, and then you went out here. You came to Silicon Valley and Google. And I was just wondering, how did that kind of coming from that world in Washington to this world in Silicon Valley and thinking about scale and innovation and, and caring, how, how did that motivate you, and what are you seeing in terms of addressing the scale of the
2: problem? Well, you know, part of it is going from what the government can do uh, to what can be done in the private sector. And I'm just coming from the March for Science, which was a pretty big day for us. We had... And the first speaker at the March for Science. Yeah, I think it was the biggest audience I've ever spoken to. 30,000 people. was pretty good. Uh, and we had, But it was uh, one of 610 marches like this around the world. So it's this is Earth Day. It's a day to speak up and stand up for science. Pretty exciting. Uh, I think a real question for us is really how much the government is able to do here. What's the role of government? What's the role of the private sector? Uh, we're in this very interesting moment where uh, clearly... Uh, federal support is almost certainly going to begin to decrease. And my hope is that uh, with more and more scientists coming to places like Apple, Google, Microsoft, Intel, many of the companies that are not too far away from us right here, um, there will be an opportunity to do great science in those places and to actually uh, contribute in an important ways. Sure, they're private sector companies. They care a lot about um, profit. They also honestly do care about uh, getting it right and doing great science, and particularly in areas like machine learning and informatics, um, they're really probably more than anyone anywhere pushing the envelope on on how we uh, address big data and and turn data into information. For me, as somebody interested in the problem we're dealing with here, with depression and PTSD and anxiety and and, um, psychotic illnesses, uh, it was an opportunity to shift from the world of supporting academics in their quest to find new treatments and to figure out if there's a way that we could engage technology to go at scale to make sure there's better access to current treatments. Uh, because I, I really began to feel that we had to rethink this. And, in, you know, in a most sort of grandiose way, when you look at what's happened in the world we live in today, where the the largest purveyor of, of um, hotel rooms that actually owns no rooms, owns no hotels, Airbnb, Uber has no cars, uh, Alibaba and Amazon have actually no inventory, I mean, we're in a really interesting world. Facebook, for all of its power, has actually no content that it produces until the last few months. So it's It's a really interesting question about whether there's a new mental health care system that could be developed that would not really have the bricks and mortar world that we've kind of been so wedded to. So coming here was a chance to rethink this and maybe to think that some of the innovation that we need is in the way that we provide access to information, the way that we can provide care at scale, the way we can actually empower people to help each other rather than buying into a more... Let's say paternalistic system that we have now, which is uh, you go on the schedule that your therapist can provide. Uh, in this case, we could have a world in which people support each other on uh, with agency, you know, on us a, on a, in a way that they prefer on their own time frame. Um, and so, uh, it's early days. I don't know if that's going to work here, and I don't know exactly how it interfaces with the world that we're talking about here, which is. Using uh, new medicines along with uh, psychotherapy, but I do think one of the things we can do is to help improve the quality of psychotherapy by standardizing interventions, by helping people to share their experiences in a way that's that's global, and that we can begin to provide supports for people not just in Marin or Berkeley or Boston, but in in Bangalore, and Kenya, and in, you know globally where. These these are really not first world problems. And I think as a community, we've got to start challenging ourselves to help people really around the world and not just in the most prosperous areas where we live.
3: I'm realizing as I looked at my watch that we could go on for a while, but we're not going to go on for as long as we could. So I want to kind of start shifting our, our view toward this whole question of, the substances, but more importantly, this frame, Tom and Paul, around medicine-assisted therapy, where we look at a more integrative model. And one of the big things that we've observed when we talk to health systems is that innovation's terrific. You can push innovation and really drive it, but somebody has to catch it. And somebody has to actually adopt it. And that innovation in the absence of people who are eager to do something different is difficult. Paul, you you just came off of president of uh, APA, uh, all the psychiatrists in the United States, and obviously very connected internationally. What do you think the appetite is right now for pulling innovation, and maybe even specifically this type of innovation, and and what do we need to demonstrate in order to get there?
4: Yeah, I actually think the, the appetite, particularly among younger physicians and younger practitioners of all types, is quite high. I mean, what will actually play out? I mean, there's 150 to 200-plus digital mental health startups, many of them based around here. Uh, There are lots of young psychiatrists who are involved in uh, in startup companies of various kinds trying to prove the case around one aspect or another of this. But if we think about what it is we're trying to achieve, and again, to Tom's point, this is a global problem. There are 4,000 psychiatrists in all of India which has a population of 1.2 billion people. There are 6,000 psychiatrists of Indian American extraction in the United States. So the ability to provide services in India, which is rapidly changing the shape and the scope of its mental health system, is going to require different forms of delivery. One leg of that delivery, just like it is in the United States, is... The most common place where people get some form of mental health care in the United States is in their general physician's office. And the quality of what's provided there is not great. So one one piece of what we have to do is use the workforce that we have, the doctors, the nurses, the psychologists, therapists, um, the caregivers of various kinds, to help them focus more on a broad range of behavioral kinds of interventions. Smoking overweight, lack of exercise, things that are going to affect chronic disease but also are going to affect mental health. A second piece is if we're going to affect the availability of mental health services in Kenya or Uganda or in India even or China, there's going to need to be other delivery platforms, and some of those are going to have to be in some form digital and scalable, and plus whatever information we get back from that. And then we've got this other... Interesting topic, which is the one that we're here about, which is these compounds, many of which are, are and certain, some of which are older compounds, some of which have been used in cultures for centuries, if not, if not recently in generations, and how do we approach those both as potential treatments in and of themselves, but also as signals, as signals of a different, like the ketamine story. Uh, which has you know proven to be an interesting story. Not clear where what its efficacy is going to be long term, but it may provide some index of some different pathways. Pathways that the NIH, the NIMH, when Tom was there, was very instrumental in funding. Um, and likewise, it, what to what degree can we help these compounds help us begin to understand some things about? the way in which we organize the world and our brains. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting neuroimaging studies that are, uh, are coming out around LSD, around psilocybin, other compounds. Um, recent study that actually David Nutt, I don't know if he's here, was involved in, and um, uh, others was uh, around looking at what were the changes in the, pa- in the, in the networks uh, that were activated and the degree to which they overlapped when people were taking LSD, which is this very, very potent 5-HT-2A a serotonin agonist. And not only what was the change in their, their level of activity, but what did it correlate with in terms of personal experience? And the highest correlation was with experiences of ego dissolution. That was the, that was the marker. That's And interestingly, in the psilocybin studies, the marker that was most correlated, the mediator that was most correlated with with re- response to treatment was mystical experience. So, again, this is going to force us to think very, very differently, and it will also provide us information about how self and other are even organized in the brain. And this is important information, but again, I think right now we're at a point where these are safe.
3: Well, thank you. Tom, I, I think we're going to start wrapping up, Is this is a Promise to be out of here at or at least uh, wheels up around 645. So I think I'd like you to reflect, Tom, you've looked at the research, and I'll ask the same question to you, Paul, in a minute. What's your advice for all of the researchers who've been just working diligently, underfunded quite often, under a lot of constraints? But if we're getting to patients in this new world of integrated care, what, do we, what does next step look like? How, what, what does this group of researchers and donors and scientists need to really focus on?
2: Well, I, I go back to your first comment, um, George, when you introduced this, that this is a journey and we're in the earliest phases. I, I often conceptualize this as being in the first chapter of what's likely to be a 10-chapter book. And the scaling problem that we're talking about is kind of in the second half of the book. Um, the first half of the book. The first, you know, the first thing you want to make sure is, uh, and the, what I feel most strongly, I'd want to say to this audience is, don't screw it up, <laughs> right? So, you're. <laughs> you no, know, I, I mean this really in a very concrete, serious way. It, it, there may be a lot of promise here, um, but it's really easy to forget about issues related to safety, issues related to rigor, issues related to reputational risk. So amazing things have happened already. I mean, when you realize that a drug like thalidomide can be used for multiple myeloma, so it's possible that you can can kind of rebrand and make progress in areas where you thought it would have been absolutely impossible. But in this case... And I think our previous speaker, or the, or I guess it was Ben, who said this a little uh, earlier today, separating out recreational use from what we're talking about here, really important. We're going to have to get really clear about that. And making sure that um, what's done is done with the highest rigor, with great regard for standards and with um, some ability for other people to – Replicate what you're doing because it's being done in, with great transparency and having great measurement. It's going to be really important. All of that stuff. It has to. It, it, I would encourage you to uh, you know be more Catholic than the Pope here. You've got to be more rigorous than the people who are working in pharmaceutical stu- uh, companies studying more traditional uh, compounds that aren't controlled. Um, and that's hard. And sometimes that's boring. And sometimes it's expensive and difficult. But uh, the danger of having um, someone have a really negative experience and uh, not having put everything in place uh, to be able to help them or to preempt that or respond to it can can really uh, poison the well here for everybody. So this stage, early in Chapter 1, let's be very mindful of risk and mitigate risk in every which way. I know you don't want to hear that, but... That's my advice to you because it's so easy to mess things up early on before you really even have a chance to prove what the efficacy is going to be here. Thank you, Tom. Tom.
4: Paul, this is hard work to do even under the best of circumstances, and um, if you look even at drug, you know, pharmaceutical-related clinical trials. Patients are highly selected. They don't look like the average patient that you see in the real world. Even if we look at the studies that people have reported here, there's lots of exclusion criteria. Um, The the very interesting psilocybin studies that were just published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology, many of those individuals were highly selected and they had um, lots of exclusion criteria and also had a a fair number of cohort with previous psychedelic experience. So again, Blinding this is going to be very, very difficult. The role of psychotherapy is going to be something that we have to think about carefully. And so doing all of this as precisely as we can, especially because these drugs have a history which they may or may not deserve, but they have been put in a certain kind of category, and the resistance to them from lots and lots of forces, people will only be waiting for one mistake or one error to kind of swipe, basically wipe all of this away again. So it's going to require very good studies, very, very great rigor, and that's going to mean funding, and it's going to mean significant funding.
3: Well, thank you for that. Um, I think it is going to mean significant funding. Um, and I think the way to get that is actually to be playing the game in the best possible way, in a way that we learn from best practice in pharmaceutical industry which may sound like an oxymoron for some people in this audience, but uh, in fact, it's looking at how do we do studies effectively at scale. That's really what's next. I'm very pleased to say that our experience in Europe, at least, is that regulators, payers, health technology agencies are all really actively engaged in how do we solve this burden that we talked about at the beginning. They're open for business to have good, engaged conversations, and they've been providing amazing advice. It's been very practical and effective. So now it's just a matter of doing the homework, getting the funding, and going forward. So thank you so much for this discussion. Thank you,
1: George. Thank you so much. Will you help me, uh, will you help me thank George and the panelists, Dr. Insel? Um, and uh, Paul Summergrad, Dr. at Summergrad. Um, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for joining us and for listening to another episode of the MAPS podcast. And as usual, don't forget to go to maps.org and sign up for the e-newsletter and check out my podcast too. It's all happening with Zach Leary over at ZachLeary.com. Thanks.